I love the answer a little boy gave when his mother asked him, what is a lie, honey? What, what is a lie? The little boy, he said, mother, a lie is an abomination to the Lord and a very present help in need. And the boy's right. That's why we lie, isn't it? We're in trouble, and we need to alter the truth. Now, not all lies are overt. Some are just small, little, subtle acts of deceit. A common lie is just finding a, a, a loophole, a way to get out of a punishment or consequence. And children are great at this, by the way, at finding loopholes. You'll tell your child, hey, clean your room. The child will scurry up to the room and everything somehow ends up in the closet. And then you go back and you, you open the closet doors, everything comes out. You say, I said clean your room. They said, I did. You didn't say clean your closet. You said clean the room, right? Your kids are running down the hallway. You have a rule of no running in your house. And you, you say, hey, I told you no running. They say, I was jogging, mom. What do you mean? They naturally find loopholes. But not only kids, adults do it too. Adults are really good at it. I actually read this past week about a lawyer named Mr. Loophole, a British lawyer. He's made his career out of finding loopholes to get his clients acquitted. We are notorious. People are notorious for finding loopholes in the law, in tax code, and you know what else? In religion. Religion. There's a, a funny story about an American comedian, W.C. Fields. He was on his deathbed, and a friend came into the hospital room and saw him reading his Bible, which he never did. And so his friend asked him, what are you doing? And he said, I'm looking for loopholes, as he was about to go meet God, right? Now, Jesus had a very specific response. When he met religious people who were trying to find loopholes in what God said, Jesus had a very specific response. He got angry. He got angry, especially when people, through their loophole-seeking behavior, they were harming other people that God loved. But Jesus did something else. He didn't just get mad. Jesus plugged the holes brilliantly. He plugged the holes, and he invited his followers to something brand new. And in the text we're going to look at today, Jesus does that in two areas. We're going to look at a text where Jesus, he's going to do that when it comes to the subject of oaths, making promises, and when it comes to the subject of divorce. Those are very different, but they're connected, and I think you'll see that as we get into the text today. I want, I want to begin in verse 33, Matthew 5, Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. Now, this right here, this is not a direct quote from the Old Testament, but it's a summary of the Old Testament's teaching on the topic of oaths. So Jesus says, you've heard that it said, fulfill your oaths, don't break them. But I tell you, Jesus says, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Now, to understand what Jesus is talking about and to connect it to our lives, because I don't know 
the last time you swore by your head or by the city of Jerusalem. So to connect this to our lives, we have to understand the context, okay? One of the Ten Commandments that God gave to Israel was don't take the name of the Lord in vain. And they took that commandment so seriously that they never even said the name of the Lord. And so when it came to making promises, they weren't allowed to say, I swear on the name of God that I did my chores. You know, they couldn't do that. So they found a loophole. And what Israel began doing was they began swearing and promising on things related to the name of God. They began saying, I swear on the temple. I swear on Jerusalem. And over time, it became a complicated mess. And part of what made it so complicated is that different rabbis, religious teachers, they taught that certain oaths were binding and other ones weren't. So, for example, one rabbi would say, if you swear on Jerusalem, it's not binding. You don't have to do it. But if you swear toward Jerusalem, then you have to fulfill your oath. So it just became this elaborate, complex Message. So just give you an example. You're on your way to Jerusalem with your family. It's Passover. And you're going, and there's other families going with you. And a family that your neighbor's with, they, they run out of grain. And they're going to have to go back to Galilee and get some grain. And they see that you've got some extra. And they say, please, will you give us a bushel of grain? And the, the, the person who's asking you says, I will give you three goats when we get back to Galilee. Please, we don't want to go back. And you're looking at your grain and you're saying, I don't, I don't know if we have enough. And you say, I don't think I'm going to be able to do that. And this person says to you, please, I, I, I promise to you on the temple that I will give you three goats when we get back. And finally you say, okay. And so you give them the grain. And then after Passover, you get back to Galilee and you go to your buddy and you say, hey, how about those three goats? And he says, ah, I swore to you on the temple that I would give you those goats. I did not swear to you on the gold of the temple. And Rabbi so-and-so, he says I'm off the hook, so sorry. But I'll give you one goat, because I feel kind of bad, so I'll give you a goat. So you can see why this made Jesus mad, right? People were using these religious games around oaths to deceive each other, and he won't have it. And so what he says is he says, don't swear an oath at all. And it's interesting, the reason why Jesus gives for not swearing an oath at all is because everything belongs to God. In other words, Jesus says, the temple, the earth, heaven, it's all God's, and God doesn't see some big difference in you swearing by the earth or by the temple. God sees your oaths the same way. So instead of doing all this, what does he say? He says, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Jesus, his interest is in utter truthfulness. And then as Jesus has a habit of doing, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, he amps up the tension because he says this. He says, anything beyond this, beyond yes or no, comes from the evil one. Now some manuscripts say it comes from evil. Maybe your Bible says that. Others say it comes from the evil one. I'm pretty sure either way that's bad. Okay? He's saying, this is evil, what you're doing. Just say yes or no. Now, this whole area of oaths is pretty easy to dismiss, isn't it? I have, I have yet to have somebody come to me and say, Pastor Matt, I need to get some time with you. And they come into my office and they sit down and they say, I'm really struggling with taking too many oaths. 
which is really hard for me. That's never happened to me, and maybe that's your struggle. I doubt it. And so what happens is we read this text, and especially after reading what Jesus says about anger in the heart and sexual desire, we read this and we kind of exhale, don't we? And we're like, finally, an area where I'm doing okay. But I'm convinced that what Jesus is saying here is actually deeply challenging for all of us today. Now, some people, to apply what Jesus is saying, they they take this and they apply it literally. So there are Quakers and versions of different Anabaptists. They won't sign an affidavit. They will not commit to join the army. They will not swear in court because Jesus says, don't take an oath. But I don't think that's the right interpretation for a few reasons. God takes oaths throughout the Old Testament. Jesus actually speaks under oath in the New Testament. Matthew 26, the high priest says to him, I adjure you in the name of the living God, are you the Messiah? And Jesus answers. The other reason I don't think that a literal wooden interpretation is the right one is the context. What has Jesus been doing previous to these verses in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus has been demonstrating how true righteousness, what he really wants, what God really wants from us, is not just about our behaviors, it's about our heart. And to help us explore this, we've been looking at the image of an iceberg. When we look at an iceberg, we see what's above the surface of the water, and it looks big, but it's only 10% of the iceberg. And similarly, when it comes to the iceberg of the human being, what we see when we look at someone else, we see their behavior. What we don't see are their intentions, their desires, their feelings, and their thoughts. We don't see what's below the waterline. But this is what Jesus has continually been exposing. I mean, in a sense, Jesus has been draining the ocean. He's been saying, here's what's underneath. Jesus is exposing and Jesus is inviting us as his followers, to deal with what's underneath. It's way easier to just deal with our behavior. But Jesus, he's after our hearts. And so the question is not, do I struggle with taking oaths? Here's the more penetrating question. What is underneath the behavior of taking oaths? And do I struggle with that? What's underneath the behavior when the Israelites would say, I swear on the temple, I swear on the gold of the temple. What's underneath, and is there any of that in my life? So what, let's talk about it. What is underneath that promise, uh, oaths? What, what's underneath it? Those words, I swear on the temple, I, I, I promise you on my mother's grave, whatever we say. What's underneath that, listen, those words are an attempt to prop up what I'm saying and give it weight because my normal words are not enough, okay? But go even deeper. Why do that? What's beneath the attempt to prop up my words and say, no, I'm serious this time. I'm really serious about this. Why do that? Ultimately, the reason why we do that is because of manipulation. We are trying, whenever we do that, we're trying to control how other people perceive me or how they respond to me. You go out to eat after this at Tommy Tai across the street and you say, dude, I forgot my wallet. 
If you'll buy my lunch, I promise I'll pay you back. Why do we say that instead of I'll pay you back? I want that person to see me as trustworthy and to pay for my lunch because I'm hungry, right? You're in a conversation and you say, seriously, seriously, or honestly, as if we're not honest all the time, but honestly, I had the best sales of anyone at my job, at my company this quarter. Why do I, why do I say that? It's because I want those people in that conversation to see me a certain way. Do you see that? This is about controlling other people, how they see us, how they respond to us. So here's the question I want to ask you. Do you ever use your words to control how other people perceive you or how they respond to you? And the truth is, we do this all the time. We exaggerate the story about the fish. It just keeps getting bigger every time we tell it, right, over the years. Grandpa's fish or our fish, it gets bigger. Why? We're trying to get people to see us a certain way. We're leaving work and we say to our spouse, I'm leaving, even though we're not leaving. Anybody else do this? This is terrible. I'm admitting this to you guys. I will... I'm in, the, I'm in the process of leaving. I'm close, but I'm not actually leaving. I'm like, okay, I'm leaving. I'm on my way. Why do I do that? Why do that? Because I want to be seen a certain way. We make promises that we have no intention of keeping. How many of you, you say, I'll be there. And you know you will not be there. But you say it. Maybe today, Super Bowl party. Yeah, I'll see you. I'll be there. You have no intention of going. Or, hey, I'll reach out to you about that. Or how about this one? I'll pray for you. Christians can be terrible at saying that and not meaning it. We say yes when we mean no, or we tell half the truth because we're afraid of not being liked, many of us. Gossip, this is, this is what gossip is. It's trying to control how people see someone else or see us. And what Jesus says, I want you to hear the weight of it. What Jesus says is all of that comes from evil. It's evil. And that his followers are to be marked by being utterly truthful. Now, what does that look like? What's Jesus' vision for us in this area? Well, I think it's simply this, that our words are congruent with our intentions, desires, feelings, and thoughts. That there's alignment between what I say and what's true. Now, this does not mean that everything that's underneath the surface just comes up, and I just say it all. I mean, telling the truth is not an excuse for unloving behavior. The Bible has a whole lot to say about discernment, holding our tongue, being patient and kind. So this is not an excuse to just say things that are harsh, because I feel it. What this is saying, though, is what does come out of your mouth, when something comes out of your mouth, it's congruent, it's true. You're not spinning. You're not trying to manage perceptions. So what do we do with this in our inner lives? How do we apply it? Well, Jesus, again, he says, all you need to say is simply yes or no. So two things for, for all of us today. All you need to say is yes or no. So say yes or no. 
But beyond that, when Jesus has all you need to say is yes or no, why? I, I, I really believe this area, this comes back to resting in the deep love of God for you. And you say, what in the world does this have to do with the love of God? I would say everything, actually, everything. Why do we spin and exaggerate and distort the truth? Why do we do that? It's to shape how people see us or respond to us. But why? It's, it, most of the time, at the root of it, it's fear, isn't it? We're afraid. We are afraid that we will be seen a certain way or that we won't get our way. And many times, it's both. But I want you to think about it. If you are totally secure in the reality that you are deeply loved by God, then you have no need to control the narrative. You are so loved and anchored in, in, in God. I love what Martin Laird, he describes in his book on prayer, he describes a saint who, whose face, whose countenance had a peace because, and what he says is, this man's poverty had taught him that he had nothing to defend. Think about that phrase for a moment. Nothing to defend. Don't you want to live that way? I do. You have nothing to defend. You can be who you are and tell the truth. And this begins with resting deeply in the love of God. And only from there can we really tell the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Now, last week, we, we talked about sex outside of marriage. This week, we talked about oaths. But between those two sections, Jesus addresses divorce. And both of these ideas, sexual fidelity and promises, promise-keeping... Both of those come into play and, and they shape how Jesus treats this topic. And I think you'll see that. So let me read this text first and then we're gonna dive in. Jesus, he says, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is a heavy topic. I'm not going to lie, this week I thought, why did I agree to teach the Sermon on the Mount? It's like a, like a death march. Um, Larry Kaiser wrote some words that I want to share with you because I, I think they help set the tone for how difficult of a subject this can be. And, may, and maybe they help you. Um, if you've never been through divorce, if you don't know anybody who has, maybe these words help you get a glimpse into that experience. The single most photographed, planned for, anticipated, celebrated, and expensive day in most people's lives is the day they get married. People get on airplanes, drive long distances, take time off work, buy new clothes. It's a really big day. Many couples come into that day with more preparation and expectation than any other day of their life. Hope overflows. 
And it's all centered around a single promise. I will love you, treasure you, be faithful to you through sickness and in health, through poverty and plenty, as long as we both shall live. But when marriages die, and they do, there are no pictures, no gowns, no invitations, no gifts, no parties. The death isn't usually a quick one, though most people wish it would be. It usually just bleeds to death from a thousand little cuts and wounds. No one calls 911 or does CPR. It's just that hearts that were once warm and thoughtful over time get tough and hard and everyone feels the pain. The death of a marriage is one of the saddest, most painful things I can think of. As we dive into what Jesus says, I just want to acknowledge the different people in the room today. There, there are people in the room and watching online who have been divorced and are remarried. There are people who have been divorced and are not remarried. There are people walking through painful struggles in their marriage. There are people who, doing really, who are doing really well in their marriage. There, there are people who are prideful about their marriage and judgmental maybe of others. And there are people who've never been married and desperately want to be or they don't intend to be. We're all here. And my hope over the next few minutes is that we hear the wisdom and the compassion of Jesus. Because I'm convinced that's what's here. And by the way, that's my goal. Like, I can't in the next few minutes, give all of the Bible's teaching on this topic. It is a complex, nuanced topic. But, but my goal is to help us understand what Jesus is saying here. And if we're going to understand what Jesus is saying, we need to understand the context in which he's saying it. I, I think many people misapply what Jesus says because they don't understand the context. They don't take that into account. In Jesus' day, a big debate was happening among interpreters of the law and it was centered around this question right here. What are the legal grounds for a man to divorce his wife? This was the big debate. You know, today it might be predestination or free will. This was the big debate that scholars, theologians, they loved to have. What are the legal grounds? And the debate, it's centered on one verse in Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24.1, where in the Old Testament law, Moses is addressing a very specific situation in a marriage. And it's a situation where a man is found, he finds something indecent, Moses says, in his wife. And he is permitted, in that instance, to give his wife a certificate of divorce. Now the debate comes down to, what does indecency mean in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1? Now, if you look at the Bible and you look at that word in context, in that context, it almost for sure means sexual infidelity. And so some rabbis, they interpret it that way. But many other rabbis, they interpreted indecency to be much broader. So, you know, there was a certain school of rabbis. They taught, okay, this is sexual immorality. This is adultery. Um, if there's adultery, then you can divorce your wife. Others said, no, indecency could mean any, it could mean you burn your husband's food. Literally, they, 
taught this. That if you burn your husband's food, that's indecent and you can divorce her. There's another rabbi who said that if you saw another woman whose appearance you liked more than your wives, then that was indecent of your wife and you could divorce her. So there was debate, but in practice, the dominant interpretation and the teaching of the day and the normalized behavior for Jews was simply what Jesus says. He quotes Deuteronomy 24. Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. So this one verse in Deuteronomy 24, taken out of context, it became the standard for teaching and practice in this area. And what this meant, just practically, was if you divorced your wife, as long as you gave her a certificate of divorce, you were doing right by her. Didn't matter what you divorced her over. Again, she might have burned the pancakes and you, you sent her away. As long as you gave her a certificate, you were doing right by her. Talk about a loophole. So what does Jesus do? He plugs the loophole. Look at what Jesus says. I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery and everyone or anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So we're going to unpack this, but I want to tell you the two things I think Jesus is doing in this passage, the two primary things Jesus is doing. First, Jesus is elevating the value of women. In this culture, women were viewed as property. And a certificate of divorce, it functioned like a woman's freedom papers. We have copies now. Archaeology, we have copies of, of, of these certificates and it says things like, you are no longer my property, you're free. Now when I ask the question, what are the legal grounds for a man to divorce his wife? I phrase it that way for a reason, because a woman could not divorce her husband. And when a man chose to divorce his wife, it was brutal for the woman. There is no other way to say it. Dallas Willard, he, he writes that in Jesus' day, in the event of a divorce, there was really only three possibilities for the woman. First, she might find a place in the home of a generous relative, but usually on grudging terms and as little more than a servant. Option two, she might find a man who would marry her, but always as damaged goods in a degraded relationship. Option three, she might make a place in the community as a prostitute. Those are your options. Society did not support a woman who was divorced or even allow her to support herself in decent ways, which is, by the way, why, you, you ever wonder why the Bible cares so much about widows in the Old Testament? God talks about widows. It's because in a patriarchal, in a heavily patriarchal society, a, a woman being cut off from a patriarch, it was devastating. It essentially ruined her. And so, so what is Jesus doing? I want you to, to see Jesus, by raising the bar for legitimate divorce significantly, he is radically counterculturally saying that women cannot be treated like property and discarded for any reason whatsoever. He is saying that is unacceptable. And my followers will not 
behave that way. You cannot treat your wife like something you own, Jesus is saying. Your wife is made in the image of God to be known and loved and a fellow heir with you of the grace of life, as 1 Peter 3, 17 says. Don't you see the compassion of Jesus here? Whose side is he taking? He is saying, I'm on the side of women. I, they are being mistreated and marginalized, and it's not okay. Now, the, the second thing that Jesus is doing, and we gotta see both of these, Jesus is elevating the seriousness of divorce. In a culture where you could divorce your wife for burning the breakfast as long as you gave her a pink slip, Jesus says there is only one legitimate reason for divorce. What he calls sexual immorality. Now, what is that? Well, sexual immorality is a Greek word, porneia. And in the Bible, that refers to any number of ways that sexuality gets distorted from what God intends. But when that word is used in a marital context, it refers almost always to adultery. Having sex with someone who is not your spouse. And the phrases that follow in this verse... I think that they are there to emphasize the seriousness of divorce. Look at what Jesus says. He says, when divorce happens for any other reason than infidelity, he makes her the victim of adultery. Those pronouns are important. What what does that mean? Well, I want you to notice first, Jesus assumes remarriage. Because again, in that day, women were pretty much forced to try to remarry if they wanted any kind of a decent, stable life. So so Jesus is saying, from God's perspective, you are still married to your first spouse because there was not a legitimate reason for divorce. And because of that, the man giving her the pink slip makes her the victim of adultery. Do Do you see the picture here? God is saying that the guilt is on you as the man for forcing her into this situation. And the only exception is if she commits adultery, in which case she has broken the covenant. It's already broken, the the, the marriage covenant. And, And this helps us understand the next phrase. Jesus says, anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This statement, this is not to forbid divorce or or remarriage. This statement is to make clear what the effects of divorce are. Jesus is not saying don't remarry a divorced woman. Jesus is saying divorce has devastating consequences. No matter what happens, infidelity or not, And that that divorce, it's a rupture in what God intended for everyone involved. In other words, this is way more serious than you know. This is so serious. Now, does this mean that infidelity is the only permissible reason for divorce? Well, to answer that question, I, I think we need to look at a sister passage to this one, Matthew 19 where the Pharisees ask Jesus, they say, why did Moses command that we were to give our wives a certificate of divorce and send them away? And Jesus, he responds saying, Moses permitted, not commanded, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. Why? Because your hearts 
were hard. And then Jesus echoes Matthew 5.32. He says, I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So according to Jesus, sexual immorality is actually a sign of something deeper. And it's the thing that's deeper that is actually the reason God permitted divorce in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament. What, what is the thing that's deeper? The thing that is deeper is a hardened heart. Jesus said, that's why Moses permitted this. Because your hearts were hard. Jesus acknowledges that in a world that is broken and marred by sin, sometimes, tragically, but sometimes hearts get hard. And sexual unfaithfulness is a sign of that. See, Jesus would say, under every divorce is a hardened heart in one or both of the spouses. And I want you to see, in these verses, I think this is the compassion and the wisdom of Jesus. Jesus is saying, this can happen. He's acknowledging it. And he permits divorce. He does not command it, but he permits it. So, is divorce ever justifiable for Jesus? I think clearly it is. It is not God's intention. Jesus is very clear. This is not God's intention for marriage. But in some situations, it is permissible. Now, the debate that Christians have is over, again, whether infidelity, sexual infidelity, is the only reason or not there can be Divorce. Now, some people argue that it is. My own view is that the underlying issue for Jesus, again, it's a hardened heart. And sexual infidelity is a clear indicator of that. But a hardened heart can manifest in other ways. Abuse is one example. A, a, a continual dominating spirit of contempt from one or both spouses that makes life unbearable. There are times, and you gotta look at the whole Bible's teaching on this, but there are times where I think in the wisdom of God, I, I think that divorce might be the wisest option to avoid greater harm. Why? Because of hardened hearts. And I'm not saying it's, a, it's an option to, to avoid discomfort. It's not what I'm saying. But again, for, for Jesus, the issue is a hardened heart which manifests at times in sexual unfaithfulness. And these, these verses are debated. I'm, I'm counting on getting some emails. I'm sure I will today about this. I mean, these are, again, the, you can land on different angles with this, but, but I just wanna point something out to you, okay? This question, when is divorce justifiable, okay, this often becomes the primary focus when we study this passage, when we look at this topic in the Bible. And are, are you ready for a punch in the gut? Are you ready? This is the same exact question that the Pharisees got fixated on and focused on. Jesus, when am I legally okay to get a divorce? What are the legal requirements? When is it? 
justifiable. That was the debate. And what Jesus does, again, he's going to bring people back, not to divorce, but to his vision for marriage. And what does Jesus also do? Jesus takes us beneath the surface. You see, on the surface, the question is, when is divorce justifiable? And it's a good question, and it's, it's important to wrestle with. What does the Bible say? But Jesus, again, as he always does, what he wants us to do through the way he elevates the value of women, elevates the seriousness of divorce, he wants us to ask deeper, more difficult questions. Questions like this, how do I see my spouse? Do I see my husband, my, my wife, do I see them as being made in the image of God? Not as an object, not as someone who's there to meet my needs. That's not why your spouse exists. Your, your spouse exists to be known and loved. And do you see them that way? Maybe a, the, the hardest question any of us could ask would be this. How is my heart towards my spouse. Now we're getting deep underneath the water line. Is my heart towards my spouse, is it soft, is it hard? And most of us have a mix of the two, right? Like I've, it's like a portfolio. Like I've got, you know, a lot of soft. I got some hard over here. Where's your heart today? And I, I wanna tell you this. I want you to hear this. Hearts become hard in marriages for all kinds of reasons, And it's not all your own fault. I want you to hear that. If you're betrayed in a relationship, there's a lack of trust, your heart's going to become hard. I'm not saying that you're to blame. And I I have compassion for you today. You know, if you're saying, my heart's hard, I think God has compassion. But I think Jesus would invite us to ask this question and to say, you know, maybe, maybe it's God, my heart is getting hard. God, would you please help me to maintain a soft heart? Help my heart to become softer. Maybe you're here today and, and your heart is hard and it's, it, it, your, your prayer is, God, would you heal my hardened heart? This can be true of any relationship, by the way. God, would you heal my hardened heart? And it may feel impossible for him to do that. It's not. It's not. Now, speaking of hearts, I want to end by talking about the heart of God for you and for for all of us today. It's very important that you hear this. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. It is not the unforgivable sin. And sometimes churches treat people who've been divorced, it's like a scarlet letter. And they feel shame, they feel excluded. And if you have ever felt that way here at GFC, I want you to know I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And that is not God's heart. And anybody in the room who tends to, sometimes we don't know we're doing this, but we look down at people who've been divorced and maybe you hear Jesus' teaching and you say, ah, divorce is a big deal committed adultery. I would say, we need to read the previous four verses where Jesus says, we pretty much all are guilty of adultery. We are all broken people. And divorce 
It's not the unforgivable sin. Secondly, hear this today. You are deeply loved by Jesus. I don't know your story. I know many of you have been through a lot of pain. You are deeply loved. And I've said it before, but it's good to say it again. These words from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, they are for disciples. Men and women who want to follow Jesus. And let me just remind you, how did you become a disciple of Jesus? What was the application process like? It was purely by grace. How do you stay a disciple of Jesus? Surely there's some level of behavior you have to maintain. Men and women, it is purely by grace. The Sermon on the Mount lays us open. I mean, it's like open heart surgery while you're awake and it's difficult. In fact, part of the reason you know you're a follower of Jesus is that it's difficult. It convicts you. But hear this today, your behavior has nothing to do with your value in God's eyes. That Jesus' decision to love you is not based on what you've done or what you haven't done, but on his decision to love you. And he made that decision a long time ago. You are so loved today. And lastly, hear this. God can bring beauty out of brokenness. And I would tell you, not only can God do this, this is what God does best. Of all the things God does, this is what God does best. He, he gives beauty for ashes. And some of you are sitting on the ash heap today. And you're grieving. Maybe you feel all alone. Maybe you're here and you've lost hope. You have no hope. I'm going to tell you that where God is, there is always hope. You may not feel that way, but it's true. Because God can bring beauty out of brokenness in his way and in his timing. And we can trust him. Will you pray with me? God, we come to you now. And Lord, I'm grateful for your word. I'm also just so aware that a text like this lands in so many different places, can bring clarity. Lord, it can also bring great conviction. Lord, your teaching, it can touch on wounds that we have, relationships that are broken. So God, would you just please in this moment just meet us where we are. Help us to see you as a God who loves us in all of our brokenness and you meet us right in it. And God, you never dilute your truth or your vision for marriage and Lord, at the same time, you, you come to make imperfect people, people like us, into sons and daughters. And that's who we are. So help us to hear these words today, God, as wisdom, as compassion. And so Lord, we respond to you now. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.